0: I'm your host, Al Frank, coming to you from central Alberta, Canada. With me today is Ethan Pippet of Standing Stone Kennels. Thanks, Ethan, for agreeing to come on, Fat Bird, Ugly Dog. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Well, uh, Al, thanks for having me.
0: Now, I won't be surprised if some of the listeners already know of the Pippett family and the uh, various aspects of their involvement in training of bird dogs. And in a minute, I'll ask you to detail that for us. But as listeners might guess, the topic of today's conversation will be training of bird dogs. I'm certain, Ethan, that you would be the first to admit that there are many good methods to train bird dogs, And I don't doubt that many of those of us who do train dogs would advocate for a particular favorite. Some that come to mind for me are obviously the Smith method, made famous by Delmar Smith and his sons Rick and Ronnie, or the Bill West and Bill Gibbons method, for which dog trainer Mo Lindley, for example, is a big proponent. So what I thought we could do today is using my two-year-old female German wirehead pointer, go through what I did in following what I think I can call the standing stone method. And we can step through the various stages of training that I took from the time I received her at 10 weeks of age, and then let you lead us through the training in a step-by-step process. But before we go and do that, Ethan, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and Standing Stone Kennels?
1: Absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, my name is Ethan Pippitt. I am the guy with the pink gun and my wife and I run a small business here in Kansas. It's grown through a number of different avenues over time. Uh, we started as just dog trainers. We were the sole two people that cared for a small string of dogs, and that brought us to seeing that there was a bigger need for continued education. Cat's backgrounds actually in education, so we took it upon ourselves to try and help people to train their dogs at home, and that's ultimately what started multiple of the other facets of our business. One of which is a YouTube channel. We have a lot of different videos. I know uh, a good portion of those you've seen. And from that, we got commonly asked, where did you get that specific product or the thing that you're using? That drove us to just be the supplier of those things. So we started Standing Stone Supply. And through Standing Stone Supply and the videos, we created a dog training community, and that's on Patreon. And that's where we give custom help or support along the way. We've combined all of these things into one path, which is our step-by-step training program in what we have called the Standing Stone School of Dog Training. We still run a full-time dog training um, business here. We are our head trainer, Jessica, and assistant trainer, Tessa do all of the, the dog training for dogs that come through. And then we have Charles who runs our El Tesoro program. That's a new piece where we actually run a string of dogs that we own for a ranch in South Texas. And I guide in South Dakota. So I run that portion of things. So we have a lot of different pieces that go a lot of different directions. And all of those are kind of centraled around bird dogs and, and specifically versatile dogs. We breed German short-haired pointers.
0: Yeah, that's a really nice introduction about both uh, yourself and Standing Stone Kennels. And I will say that, you know, I took advantage of the Patreon component to get specific help. And I followed the Standing Stone YouTube channel. And I will admit that For things that were very specific to my dog that are generalized on the YouTube channel, the Patreon option was a huge help. And I know of your step-by-step program, but at the time, the step-by-step program was not available to me, but it was something that I wished was available. So I can see that as being an excellent option for people who are just starting out.
1: Yeah, we like to call it a guide to the YouTube videos. So almost all of them. There's a good portion that are not on YouTube. Uh, I think it's about 25 maybe videos, maybe 30. But the rest of them are all YouTube videos, but they're all collected in one place in a specific order. And the best versions are multiple versions of the process. Um, And that also includes a a checklist kind of to follow. Does my dog do... These things, yes, you're ready to move to the next category. So, it just kind of gives you, like, say, a guide to the YouTube videos. You have access to uh, more direction on how to follow those that process.
0: Okay, that gives us a really good sense of what you do currently, but you are obviously influenced by many things pre Standing Stone. I'd like to hear a little about your first hunting dog. Who were your main mentors, that first job that you had as a dog trainer, and what led you to decide to become a pro trainer?
1: I've always been one of those people that kind of feels like they can do it themselves. I wanted a bird dog. I got the opportunity to go hunting with a family friend and shot my first pheasant in Iowa where we where I grew up immediately went home told my parents I wanted to get a bird dog they said absolutely the second you move out you can do whatever you want I graduated high school moved out to follow my girlfriend at the time now wife to North Dakota and her family hunted and I got to do some hunting with her and her dad and their family friends and decided I really needed to get a bird dog. So I started doing some research and then Kat surprised me on my birthday. We went to a place that she'd found an advertisement in the paper. We pick up crazy Sammy that day. And I basically made these predetermined rules. Basically, if she wasn't the right color and she didn't do, you know, didn't do these things and if ends and but all of the things that we currently recommend that you don't do. I did them and we we took home this puppy out of the paper almost got a two-for-one deal because the other one had some issue with its eyes or something and they and the lady was trying to just give it to us and i very soon realized though my head was dead set on if i just put enough time into this i'll be a great dog trainer that i knew absolutely nothing about dog training and sammy didn't make it easy Looking back on what she was and kind of what it took to get her where she ended up, she was a great learning dog, but a very difficult one. Nothing really went as planned. She didn't have the natural desires and tendencies. It's a little puppy she didn't want to retrieve as through development, she didn't want to point birds. We, We had to teach a lot and we had to do a lot of things and she turned out great, but she was a hard starting dog and probably a really good dog to start with. She taught me a lot. She's actually what linked me to the the place that I actually, the first kennel that I actually worked at. So being of the age or era that I am, I started looking to the internet for dog training advice. And at that point in time, there was very, very, very little out there. But there were a handful of videos that were from, is called Willow Creek Kennels. And I looked at them, I said, I, I bet I could do a little better job with the video work on this, but the content's really good. So I reached out to him and said, I'm a poor college student. I have a bird dog. I don't know what I'm doing. Could I work with you guys and help you with your videos in exchange for a little bit of help? Can, can we barter here? And that ultimately turned into a full-time job. I worked at the kennel there for about three years. And then I got a call from my uncle who lives in Kansas, which is how we ultimately ended up back down here. And he said, I need a grocery store manager. I'm branching out and buying a couple of the small stores in surrounding areas. And said, was this something you'd be interested in doing? And it was going to pay about double what I was making as a dog trainer. So young guy, family man, got to support my wife and myself, or at least that's my my thought process. And I went, absolutely. This seems like a great opportunity to go make more money. So we moved to Kansas and we worked there. And then shortly after had an, an overwhelming number of people that reached out and said, Hey, we found you. Can you still train our dogs for us? And we, it's not something we'd really truly considered at that point and tried to make a run at it. And and here we are.
0: You're also known as the guy with the pink gun, as you mentioned in your intro. How did you get that name?
1: Ah, uh, self assigned. I do a lot of testing. We run AKC hunt tests, we run Navda tests, and in those higher levels of testing, you have to carry a shotgun. I was young and looked like a kid running around at the events, but I did really well with our dogs. And my break open shotgun was a Steven's Arms single shot 20 gauge that I bought at a pawn shop. And I had this wild idea that if I paint the shotgun pink, maybe I would stand out. And it uh, very much was the case. So now I am attending all of these hunting dog events, carrying around a pink shotgun as a man. It is very much a stick out like a sore thumb kind of situation. And then people started watching and then my already fairly successful attempts at these events and things like that started to stick a little bit more. And though people didn't necessarily know who I was, I've been told on a regular basis, Al, that I'm not very approachable. So I... (laughs) at events I'm focused so if anybody's listening you ever run into me at an event I do want to talk to you but I'm I'm my number one uh, focus there is to test and be in the right brain space to be able to make sure that the dogs do what they're supposed to and that we're successful I mean that's my goal I'm competitive and in that I'm competing against the standard and I I want to do well so I'm very focused and, and that can be, uh can put up some walls that prevents people from wanting to come say, hey, how are you? And uh though people still didn't know exactly who I was, they remembered that guy, or at the time, that kid with the pink gun, who was that? He left with all those ribbons.
0: Okay, interesting. Now, I do find it a little surprising that people would find you, let's call it standoffish, but... And you've mentioned Kat, your wife, and she's known as Kat the dog trainer. My suspicion is she is viewed as anything but standoffish.
1: <laughs> uh, on average, I would say she is the one that people feel more comfortable with,
0: 100%. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of Cat, I know she has, and I'll call it a pet peeve, I may be wrong on that, but Pigeons are clearly a big part of how you and Cat and your training staff go about developing a bird dog. You use them to gauge and encourage prey drive, for example. You use them to bring out a dog's natural tendency to point. And you use them to develop steadiness. Now, initially, you solely used barn pigeons, but you then developed an interest in homing pigeons and racing, which I think may be cat's pet peeve. Tell us about your racing flock.
1: Uh, well, I blame YouTube for that. It was uh, an attempt at additional content. So we've, we've had pigeons and we do use them as a huge part of our program uh, for a number of different reasons. One of which they're a renewable resource, but two, they typically fly better. They're easier to take care of and keep alive. So from a keeping birds around standpoint to train dogs with, pigeons are a a really good option. So we've had them the entire time that we've been training dogs and that I thought would be cool since they're homing birds and stuff, how far can I train these homing pigeons to home? So I was building out content for YouTube, following along, and we named the birds and I made it out to about eight miles and they started to disappear. So then I went on a search for, there's got to be better birds out there to try and do this with. A listener or a follower reached out and said, hey, my grandpa races pigeons and he may have some decent birds that he could get you set up with. Well, that led to another, to another, to another down a rabbit hole of now I have 24 pairs of top quality pedigree racing birds. And I flew over 60 pigeons in one loft races this (laughs) last year. So, it's uh, grown. And like most things we do, I, I, I do it to the best of my ability. And Like I told you before, I'm fairly competitive. So all of those things combined means it's uh, become a very big hobby for me.
0: Now, you've mentioned your YouTube channel, and I pointed out that I used it almost entirely. You have what you refer to as your puppy training series. I used the series from several of your puppies as a gauge for what I should be doing and when I should be doing it. Of course... I did what most people do. I started with the basics and began house training and crate training. So if you could briefly touch on each of those, and then what I'd really like you to do is talk in a little bit more detail about something you call charging the clicker. Tell us what it is and why and how you use it. So as far as house training or crate training goes, we start
1: that right when puppies first come home. We utilize crates for, and this number sounds a little scary, but for 16 to 18 hours a day, puppies are crated. Their attention span is short. And that time period also includes a, let's say, a standard eight-hour overnight. Of the remaining 16 hours of the day, they are crated for eight to 10 of those. And in between those, you have to make it time important, but they're just like any other baby They sleep a lot. Now, as you progress through that training process, if you're crating them, on average, a dog in an appropriate size crate, which would mean similar sized to it, not having a bunch of excessive room, they don't want to mess in their space and it helps you to regulate when the dogs are actually going to the bathroom. The other side of it is it prevents unsupervised time, which allows for them to develop bad habits. Once they come out of the crate, they would go potty. Then they spend time in the house for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour, depending on what exactly is going on. That is 100% supervised time. I cannot stress it enough. If they are not being crated, they need to be 100% supervised. So you can catch them in the act of having an accident and that being able to be timely in... Things that could be struggles with young puppies, like chewing things up, peeing on the floor, getting into stuff that they're not supposed to. If you're there when that stuff is happening, you can stop it and you can correct it. You can say, no, that's bad. Don't do it. And then redirect to something else. Being there for those moments, preventing them from becoming learned behaviors or habits is huge. So crate training becomes a very, very, very important part of house training young dogs for us. Okay, and charging the clicker. So a clicker is essentially a marker. And uh, most dog trainers utilize some form of marker. And whether you know it or not, uh, you are probably using a marker yourself. Um, It's a way to communicate to the dog that what they're doing is right. So I would say most commonly people think of saying yes or good dog or good boy Those are all verbal markers affirming what the dog is doing. A lot of pro trainers utilize a single word. So, we talk about in training, consistency is very important. So, pro trainers understand this and move into the category of using a verbal marker because they always have their voice and can say yes. And they just would consistently say yes or good or pick a word, pick a thing, be consistent. You take it the next level when you actually utilize a clicker and the clicker is just a little noise maker. Originally, it's a toy for small children that has now been developed specifically for dog training and animal training. Um, When we look at training, we try and do things in, in a way that allows us to be most efficient and move as fast as possible. Fast from a standpoint of keeping you interested in the process, keeping the dog interested in the process, and allowing both of you to progress at a rate that keeps everyone having fun and enjoying it. So we look at clickers from this specific way for a number of different reasons, and then I'll explain charging. There's a little backstory to it. I apologize. The clicker itself, utilizing... A noise device that is exactly the same every time is 50% faster when a dog is learning. A Good book to read, not about dog training, but about how operating conditioning works would be Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. And she talks about clicker training and how that process in itself works. So when you have family situations, which is what we typically deal with, or we have an entire team of trainers here at the kennel, everybody can make the exact same marker that says, yes, you did it right. So we stick with clickers for that specific reason. Now, charging the clicker is the most important part of that process because when you start with it, nothing means anything to a puppy. Saying yes or good dog doesn't mean anything. The clicker itself means nothing. So we actually have to build a positive association around the noise that the clicker makes. And that's simply done by clicking and then providing a food reward. Now, you can use treats, but we specifically use the dog's dog food. And we feed Yukonuba Premium Performance Puppy Pro to all of our young dogs. And then we move into the rest of the performance line for our adult dogs. But they work for meals. And, and that's an important part of the standing stone process, if you
0: will. You know, it never occurred to me, by virtue of using a clicker or multiple clickers across multiple people... But the idea that you can use the clicker to begin and end a particular behavior that you want to encourage makes a ton of sense when you think that on Monday it could be trainer one, on Tuesday it could be trainer two, Wednesday it could be trainer three, and yet they're all, in essence, using the same language. Correct.
1: Communication breakdown is what we typically look for. And most of the things that we use throughout our training process are ways to communicate properly, consistently, timely with the dog.
0: Okay. Now, one of the other things that you encourage as part of your, I'll call it puppy development, is the use of non-squeak or de-squeaked toys with your pups. Now, some argue against doing so because there's the belief that it sets a dog up to have a hard mouth. Tell us why you like to encourage playing tug-of-war and how you go about using it.
1: There's a couple things that you, you mentioned in there. We don't recommend squeaky toys or, or toys with squeakers in them For bird dogs specifically, if you don't actually have a bird dog or you have a second pet that is just a family companion and pet, squeaky toys can be a very fun thing for the dog and can be a satisfying process of chewing and squeaking a toy. When you get into the bird dog category, the same satisfaction comes with the bird dog squeaking the toy, but it does actually develop chewing, rolling, mouthing, Uh, which would be ultimately really bad mouth habits for bird dogs because that transfers into birds, which a dead bird, when it's crunched just a little bit, can a lot of times squeak. And then that will trigger, oh, let's just crunch, 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 crunch this bird. And then all of a sudden you have mangled messes and, and it's not optimal. Now, as far as the tug side of things go, it's a pretty controversial topic in this Stage. I don't even want to say controversial. It's pretty one sided. Bird dog people say don't teach tug of war, period. It will cause long term issues with your dog being hard mouthed and fighting you for birds. That would be true if you only teach half of it. Half of it meaning you only teach tug and play it as a game that the dog always wins. If you look at bite dogs or detection dogs or working dogs, in that aspect of the world, they pretty much rely on fetch and tug as a primary source of reinforcement or positive reinforcement reward for those dogs. And when you look at the level of discipline that those dogs have, they can run and bite someone and with a single cue, say stop and they stop, right? So how can we not apply that same level of training and handling to a bird dog? I thought we can probably do this. So as long as we teach the dog at a young age, the tug game, they get really good at grabbing things and holding on well. Then we have to teach them impulse control, which we'll talk about later. But also we have to teach them a simple release. And once those two things are combined, you don't have a dog that fights you for birds. And you have a dog that naturally has a really strong mouth and a really strong hold. So it's uh, it can be very beneficial in developing a young retrieving dog, bird dog.
0: With my dog, I saw all of those things that you've outlined. Having charged the clicker, I then used it to begin basic obedience training. Let's run through some of the ways that you use the clicker. Maybe choose either sit or place training or recall and give us an example of how you go through that.
1: It's great. Once a clicker is charged, you kind of mentioned this before. Ultimately, the way you need to think about the clickers is a form of communication. When you click, whatever the dog is doing, they will imprint that on their brain. That is something I need to do again in order to get rewarded. As you had mentioned, the clicker marks the behavior, but it also ends the behavior. So, if you want a simple behavior like sitting, first you could mark instant the dog's butt touches the ground. And there's a number of different ways to go about this. Um, I feel that, on average, if you can utilize what would be considered free shaping more than doing more traditional methods that people think about, like Pushing a dog's butt down to teach them to sit or lifting their head up and pushing their butt down. Anything that you're manually manipulating a dog to do and then trying to click and mark that will be nowhere near as powerful as you allow the dog to exhibit a behavior. So, this would be I stand in the room with a puppy and I have their food and they're focused on me. So, this would be the puppy's going to jump on me. The puppy's going to run over its dog bed. It's going to run around the room. It may bark at me, it's gonna try all of these different things. And then it may just randomly sit down because that's the thing that dogs do. You have to be ready timing-wise and you click and mark that. It may take upwards of three, five, seven minutes before a dog exhibits something that you want to mark. But as soon as you mark it, if the clicker is charged properly, they're gonna key in instantly and then they're gonna come over to you for a reward, you feed them and then you wait again. And the first time might take that seven minutes. The second time might take three to five minutes and it's going to get faster. After about three to five marks in a free shaping session, the dog will almost instantly switch to just, you won't get anything but sits, focuses and sit, 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 sit. If you have the patience can be applied to basically every single obedience behavior that you would teach. We teach a few, keep things fairly simple with basics like sit and kennel. And here for recall, we teach whoa, And then down the road, we'll teach things like fetch and healing. All of those basic things are taught with the clicker.
0: Okay. So if I then use place training as an example, all I would wait for is the dog to then step on whatever the place is. It could be the dog bed. It could be something else. But once it Gets to that place, I just use the clicker that communicates to the dog that that's what I want you to do. And by virtue of having done it, you then get a food reward.
1: That's absolutely correct. Now, there are a couple things you may be thinking, wow, this could take a while or it could take quite a bit if you get into anything that's more advanced, but setting up low distraction environments to train in. It's kind of an important thing. Um, So if you ever see our training room, there's literally nothing in it other than the things that we put in it. So if I'm going to do a place training session, the only thing the dog has access to interact with is the wall, the floor, me, or the place board. That makes getting to the end goal with free shaping sessions a lot easier. But we often talk about in dog training, the smaller steps you take, the faster you get there. So, you don't have to expect the dog's going to get on the placeboard, board, it's going to sit and it's going to look at me pretty. And that's the first time that I can click and mark that. You can mark steps leading up to that. So, if your dog is struggling, but they kind of head in the direction of the placeboard, board, you could mark that. And then as long as you're consistently moving them in the direction of the placeboard, board, it's not going to take very long before they touch the board and then you mark that. And then they're going to do it again. And then you'll have a dog that's basically sitting there and they'll just put a paw on it and look at you and a paw on it and look at you. And then you hold out for them and they'll get a little frustrated and they'll try something more. And that might be two paws on it or they might jump on it or something like that. And as they attempt to think through the process, as long as you're marking properly, they'll move toward the end goal, which would be getting on the place board. Now, all of that being said, it's going to vary a little bit based off of an individual dog's desire to work and please, but also an individual dog's intelligence level. Some dogs are smart and they like to figure out challenges and they like to think through things and work on stuff and they kind of love that. And that's something that we build into our personal breeding program. There are other breeds and there are other dogs that that do struggle with desire to do the task. And sometimes at that point, you have to get a little more creative, which is why our step-by-step program doesn't work for 100% of dogs. And we offer the other options like the custom training through Patreon to say, oh, you're struggling here. Here's a couple tips to, to get you moving in the right direction.
0: Okay. Excellent. Now you mentioned impulse control a little earlier, and I'm wondering whether you could comment on the importance of instilling impulse control and I'm particularly interested in hearing how you go about using it as a precursor to steadiness.
1: So impulse control is something that all dogs fight and some more than others but all dogs fight this and it's think about it uh, in situations as simple as you open the door, and, and the dogs basically trying to push past you to blow out the door. Or you go to set a bowl of food down for them, and they're jumping out uh, up at it because they're excited and they're enthusiastic about life in general, and they're trying to get to that food instantly. And all of those things are viewed as naughty behaviors because they are, and they fall into the category of impulse control, which on a bigger spectrum does get into a a steadiness zone of can I stand and point a bird with pointing dogs specifically and can i wait there until ultimately i'm being released so there are natural abilities that help dogs to be better in these categories but then um training involved with that can can really be helpful and it's one of those things that's taught again in small steps with simple things so we typically utilize a higher value reward like a piece of cheese or lunch meat or something like that. I hold that in my hand and I open it out. And it almost seems at first glance, this almost seems a little bit like teasing, but we do reward the dog throughout the process. And what we're trying to mark and reward is the dog saying, I understand I can't try and snatch that super cool, special reward right out of your hand. I need to wait and then you will give it to me. As you move through that though, it's, it's just kind of slowing the process down and teaching if you wait a second, you'll get to do what you want and you ultimately get rewarded through that process uh, on top of that.
0: My wife actually used that drill and it worked extremely well. Didn't take very long before the dog realized that in order for it to get the reward, all it had to do was wait until it was released to do so. Correct. Now, you know, I took about a month to establish that my pup knew what the clicker was for and to make sure that she understood what the various cues were in terms of how they were related to a given behavior. Then at about four months of age, I did a bird introduction and I began leash training and added healing. Can you take each of those, and run through the ways in which you go about teaching a dog what you want of it.
1: We'll start with the the leash and the healing category. Healing specifically means for a dog to walk by your side with you. There's also just loose leash manners, which is something that I think that most people are more interested in from a, my dog is my pet and we live in the city and we have to go for walks. I don't want the dog to have to just walk Directly next to my side, I want them to have the opportunity to explore. Though healing, a dog walking directly by your side and being very obedient, seems like the more advanced behavior between the two, the healing is actually an easier thing to teach first because of the fact that you're eliminating a huge number of distractions by keeping the dog next to you. Does that make sense? Totally. So, uh, if you have a dog loose leash, though, they have access to sniff and check things out, and those are constant distractions that build into being a more difficult behavior for them to master. Can I walk with you while not pulling on the leash, but having access to all of these distractions? So, like everything, we teach or, or build this off of positive reinforcement, clicker training. We develop a healing position. So, we teach the dog how to get next to our side then how to take a few steps with us and we mark those processes along the way and reward them and then you get a dog that's it's understands how to get there and understands that's a good place to be and then we actually utilize a product that we developed called the Easy Lead. You can make a head halter, so some people have also seen products like maybe a Halty or a Gentle Leader. Those are a head halter style leash and what the Easy Lead does is stops pulling in high distraction environments. It does not teach the dog to heal. That's a a big misconception there. Once you've established that the dog no longer wants to pull against the leash, you can develop a really good habit in these higher distraction environments. And then you can slide that off their muzzle and then you have a slip lead, which would be a more standard way to teach dogs to heal. People use choke chains or slip leads Those products are um, a more traditional way that it sits tight, um, high and tight on the dog's neck and allows you to make corrections to prevent the dog from pulling. And that would be where a lot of people would start. That's our second step. And then you can apply collar conditioning to that when your dog is ready and you have a dog that ultimately would be able to heal completely loose lead or off lead. And then once you have a dog that has all of those pieces, then I would look at the progression of moving into just loose leash walking because you have so much more understanding of the the walking process and the leash and, and pressure on and off, which would be applied during that process as well. With our easy lead, you get a lead that does the head halter. It's also a slip lead. And then when you have a dog that's completely done, it becomes a four and a half or six foot long leash. Now, if you progress from the, the leash and the healing work into bird introductions, one of the things that's really important is to introduce the dogs to feathers. That's a big part of birds. This can be done with feathers on a bumper or a dead bird. That's completely fine. They get used to the smells. They get used to the texture, the things in their mouth. And then you can move on to a live bird. This is one that we've gotten a fair amount of pushback from both people in the industry and without. We'll get comments of people saying, I'm a hunter and I fully understand this and I think this is still animal cruelty and you shouldn't be able to do this introduction with a live bird. Well, I do understand that torturing animals is not part of our gig in any way, shape or form. But if your dog is not exposed to a bird that is alive and flaps around before it enters the field, you set yourself up for the potential of some pretty major setbacks or, or permanent damage from a sense of being bird shy. The first thing that they run into is a covey of Hans or a pheasant comes out of a, some thick grass that they were close to. You know, all of those things could be very scary for, for a young dog but a dog that has the opportunity to experience live birds before that in a controlled environment makes a big difference. The other side of it is a dead bird is not fun. If the dog ultimately sniffs it, picks it up, sets it down, goes, eh, it doesn't really do anything. If you then take a bird that is alive and flaps around, you toss that bird for them, then they get to chase it. We have to remember that our dogs are predators. So, they see movement that excites them. They want to chase and catch things. And that we use to a huge part of our advantage in developing bird and prey drive in young dogs. And that's, again, requires live birds in order to do that. So there's kind of a two part process in that bird introduction.
0: Okay. Now, by the time I had worked through my bird intro, my leash and healing training, plus spent all of the time on all of the other behaviors that I had wanted the dog to learn to that point. It was around May. My dog was about five months of age. And of course, by that point in time, the weather had warmed up. And I took an opportunity to do a water introduction by letting her retrieve bumpers that were thrown into large shallow pools of water from leftover snowmelt. Give us a sense of the best way to go about water introduction to ensure that a dog doesn't have an initially poor experience with water that influences its willingness to enter water later on.
1: So optimal situation there is that you would be outside, warm water, and you have something that the puppy has a high drive to chase or play with. A lot of times we can utilize bumpers because by the time we are doing water introductions, we've built good retrieving desire. Some dogs, we need to utilize birds to entice them to want to swim or to jump out in the water. You yourself, as the the dog trainer, need to get in the water with your dog and don't push it too fast encourage swimming. Don't force swimming.
0: Okay. Now, earlier on, you mentioned the phrase color conditioning. And at this point, I started color conditioning for both place training and recall. Can you tell us what you mean by color conditioning and how you go about using it to build on the place and recall training that is typically done prior to color conditioning. Absolutely. But before you do that, and you've already mentioned this, I'm wondering whether you can comment on the concept of first teaching a behavior, followed by conditioning that behavior, followed by generalization of that behavior.
1: Absolutely, really, really good question. So when we are developing dogs, You would first teach. We teach everything utilizing positive reinforcement. Collar conditioning doesn't happen in any of the teaching stages. We do not use e-collars to teach. We teach with positive reinforcement. And once we've built a solid understanding of individual behaviors, then we work through the second stage, which would be differentiation. So in the beginning, you should be teaching one behavior per training session. Let's say you work on sit. The next session, you can teach a different behavior, but don't work on multiple in the same session at this point. So, you could work on sit. You could work on kennel. You could work on whoa or standing. You could work on the healing behavior. All of those in individual sessions give the dog some variety, give you some variety as you work through this teaching portion. Once you have a really good understanding, your puppy has a really good understanding of multiple different behaviors, then you can start to differentiate When you work on one thing per session, the dog gets really good at anticipating what you're going to be asking, which is how you can build good reps. But they're anticipating what you're asking and they have it figured out. So we move into the differentiation stage, which allows you to work on multiple cues, different behaviors in one session. Start with two, work to three, then to four and five and so on. So that the dog is showing they're responding to what you're asking, not just guessing, once you are through teaching and differentiation, your dog can perform all of the tricks for you very consistently doing only what you're asking and not anything you're not. Then we move into generalization. Generalization would be take the show on the road per se. You're going to move your training session from your your normal area that you're training to a lot of different areas and you should be able to complete that same differentiation type session. So this would be A different room in the house, maybe then the garage where there's more distractions and smells than maybe outside if you've got a fenced-in yard. All of those things are going to help the puppy to understand in the training sessions what the expectation is and that I can listen in all of these different environments. It kind of breaks down the process of going from, I can do some really good obedience work in the kitchen during my training session to I don't listen at all after the session when I go outside to play in the yard. So, you've worked through teach and differentiate and generalize. And then we move into the final step, which would be proofing. And that's where collar conditioning comes in. Collar conditioning allows us to communicate with the dog and help to work through higher distracting environments. Dog is distracted. We can reach out and say, hello, and pull focus back to us. And then they ultimately are just doing something that they've already proven in multiple different areas that they know how to do. So e-callers are used to build consistency and strengthen behaviors, not to teach.
0: Okay. Now, my dog was about five months of age at this point, and I started my introduction to woe. Using something that you call the positive pigeon drill. Can you tell us about that and how you go about using it, including the way you actually introduce the cue, Whoa?
1: Sure, absolutely. So we would start Whoa with clicker training standing. Then, once we would move out of the yard, we do most of the time eliminate the clicker from a timing standpoint because it gets to be too many things. We're using positive reinforcement, but not always using a clicker. But ultimately, you hold a pigeon. This is where pigeons kind of start in the process and become really important for these young dogs. You hold a pigeon in their hand. The dog gets to see what it is and smell it and know what it is. And as soon as they stop and stand still, you just let the bird go and they get to chase. That becomes a really fun game. You control all of the timing with the bird in your hand and when you release it. Most dogs figure out in a very short number of reps, usually less than 10, that as soon as they stop and stand still, and this all comes down to your timing, if your timing is correct, they move very quickly. If your timing is off, you're sending mixed signals and it can confuse dogs. But as soon as they stop and stand still, they get to chase another bird. A lot of times, young dogs, especially the ones that are higher end pointing desire, they start stopping further and further and further away from you. So they chase for a little bit. And then as soon as you're in sight, sometimes even, the dog might be 30 yards away or 40 yards away. They stop and essentially point you because they know the second that they stop, you're going to release another bird. And there's opposite extremes in this. We do this drill for a number of different reasons. One of which is to simply teach standing equals birds. And, and that's an important move in the forward direction for bird dogs. But the other side of it, it tells us a lot about the individual dog's personality. And if I haven't raised the dog, it just came in for training, um, doing this as a really early step in their development allows me to know more about what their field work will look like long-term. Dogs that start that process that I was explaining about stopping further and further and further away from me, Those are dogs that are going to be very natural pointing dogs. They're going to point their birds. They're going to be naturally steady. They're going to make that process easier. The opposite end of that, that spectrum is a dog that runs all the way back to me. Every single bird, no matter what I'm doing, they run all the way back to me and then jump on me two or three times and then stand still. And then they get another bird. Those dogs are typically really high in prey drive and desire and struggle to be steady on birds. So, You get to learn kind of what progressions we're going to have to potentially take in the future, but the dogs learn to build a relationship with you as a handler and that if we work together as a team, they can get more birds and which is a a really big payday for most bird dogs.
0: Okay. So tell us just how you introduce the cue.
1: We develop behaviors first before we apply cues to them because dogs don't speak English. They don't know what we're saying until they have something to associate it with. The words aren't actually required for them to do the behavior. They're more required for us to communicate what we want them to do at a specific time. We've already introduced the cue by this point with the clicker training and standing sessions, but now we can apply it as well. Once the dog is good at stopping, Once they see us and the bird and they're standing still, you can say, whoa, give it a second and then okay to release them right before you release the bird. So you're kind of reinforcing that that process also involves birds in the field.
0: Yeah. Now, what you just described there with a dog initially sight pointing the pigeon that you're holding in your hand and then increasing the distance from which it points, and anticipating that I, even without a pigeon, becomes an object that could be pointed is exactly what I saw in my dog, literally just showed the pigeon and this dog went on point. So it really is an excellent drill. Now not long after introducing the positive pigeon drill and introducing the whoa cue. To develop steadiness, I also used what you refer to as a steady lead and then the placeboard to further develop steadiness. Can you outline the way in which you use both the steady lead and the placeboard? That concludes part one of my conversation with Ethan. Tune in to the next episode to hear his answer to this question and our discussion regarding use of pigeon launchers, collar conditioning of woe spaying and neutering, avoiding collar dependency, and of course his answers to my rapid fire questions.